from among his virtues and vices, you had to take him whole. For many, in the words of my father, Al Siegel, Rudy was a beloved son of a bitch. Giuliani's critics rightly saw him as a battering ram of a mayor, but they were so angered by the way he mocked the mores of New York's encrusted liberalism that they rarely grasped the depth and subtlety of his intelligence— His sometimes brilliant and often tactical use of his temper obscured the enormous preparation and planning that went into his policy reforms. Giuliani, who studied the city charter with the intensity and focus of Napoleon assaying battlefield topography, was almost always better informed and better prepared than the defenders of the old order. With few exceptions, his critics never grasped the complexity of a man who could both hector his in-town adversaries and then speak to out-of-towners with grace and Clintonian eloquence. They couldn't see the man who spent a day talking intensely and sensitively with the individual residents of the Third Street Men's Shelter on the Bowery, a few blocks from my office at the Cooper Union. Like Churchill... Giuliani's arrogance and sense of mission freed him from a narrow identification with a party. His tactical flexibility in pursuit of fixed ends kept his opponents off balance and served the city well. It always appeared to me, noted Giuliani, that the city of New York traditionally did better when the mayor was somewhat unpredictable, when the mayor was not a complete captive of one political party or the other, To be locked into partisan politics doesn't permit you to think clearly. New Yorkers have long seen their city as a cosmopolitan dynamo in which the only constant is change. Philip Hone, the great pre-Civil War New York diarist and merchant, struck what would become a common chord in writing about New York when he complained that the local ethos was overturn, overturn, overturn. Henry James picked up the same lament fifty years later when he wrote that New York is crowned not only with no history, but with no credible possibility of time for history. New York is, always has been, and always will be a provisional city defined by what James termed a dreadful chill of change. The famed 1940s journalist A.J. Liebling described the city as renewing itself until the past is perennially forgotten. The great exception to New York's dynamism is politics and government. There, its deep-dyed ideological liberalism made it the most traditional of cities, firmly anchored in the LaGuardia years of the 1930s, which exert an almost mystical pull on the local imagination, New York turned the temporary emergency of the Great Depression into the permanent basis of its politics and government. New York, notes urbanist Otis White, was one of the last cities to give up elevator operators and trust people to push their own buttons. It was one of the last cities to adopt automated teller machines, and for more than 30 years it resisted automating entry to its subways. It is the only major city that still has in place the emergency housing regulations, known as rent control, passed during World War II. Gotham is still, as new arrivals quickly discover,
the only major city that hasn't adopted multiple listings for real estate. The common thread is that in each case, organized interests blocked innovation. In 1961, Nathan Glazer, writing in commentary, asked, Is New York City ungovernable? That same question endured for the next 35 years. Glazer noted that since World War II, the number of students in the city schools had declined by 7%, while staff had grown by 22%, a pattern that repeated itself across city agencies. Rising government employment translated into declining city services, in part because the answer to all problems seemed to be to spend more money in the manner it had been spent since LaGuardia. The newly powerful Reform Democratic Clubs of the 1950s blamed these problems on a nearly moribund Tammany Hall.